Welcome back to our, I forgot, five. (laughs) 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 We were just talking about how tired uh, James and I are getting. So welcome back to our five. And uh, this hour is brought to us by uh, Resilience Think Tank. Yeah, the Resilience Think Tank is dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. Thank you for sponsoring this hour. I'm James Green. This is Alex Holick. And we have a special guest. Regina Phelps. Longtime friend of the Preparing for the Unexpected podcast. Yes. Actually, before we get started, because I've always wanted to get the two of you together. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm just, worried now. Now we're in trouble. Hold the mic. I wanted to personally thank both of you, because you are the two people who have been on the show more than anybody else. Uh, so share, sharing your ideas and your thoughts, and I've enjoyed every single conversation we've had. And it's a pleasure having you, you as that? friends and colleagues. Well, thank you end, so much. At the end, uh, that's very kind of you, Alex. I think at the end, we ask him who he likes better. Okay, that's a great <laughs> idea. Okay. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, there we go. Is that All right. right? So, uh, Regina, what brings you to lovely, snowy Toronto? First of all, James, it's freezing outside. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that straight All away. Right. Uh, but it wasn't the cold that brought me here. It was the conference. And today I, I was actually speaking yesterday. Yes. I did a two-hour ransomware exercise. At like 8 in the morning, right? At 8 in the morning. Tough, 8 to, eight to 10.30. Okay. And then I did an, a, a speech last afternoon. Yes, last night. Last uh, Yesterday afternoon. And it essentially was on the lessons learned from the pandemic. Now, talk to us about the ransomware exercise, because you're primarily known as an expert in pandemic and COVID. So I always love it when you talk about other things. So what were some of the themes of uh, the exercise you did yesterday? It's a great question. So even though I am known for my COVIDness, yes. I guess you could say, <laughs> uh, of my 40 years of practice, I've only done that for 27 years. I've actually been designing exercises for 40 Uh, What I focused on primarily is designing a really interactive exercise to really demonstrate um, the capabilities or lack thereof of a crisis management response to a ransomware attack. And in our client population, we've had, oh my gosh, so many large global companies that we work for that have had catastrophic attacks. And so essentially what I've learned is that you can design, you can really help a company by having a really highly interactive, highly designed exercise. But the secret sauce to my exercise, you're going to laugh because you already know this, is that, (laughs) is that at the end of the exercise, I want everybody to cry. (laughs) Wow. All right. Now I was not expecting those words to come out of your mouth. Well, you know, every, when you design an exercise, I mean, I've designed almost 5,000 exercises in my career. You always want people to leave feeling, you know, oh, you know, it was really hard, but we managed and it was great. But in a cyber exercise, you do not want to do that because you don't want executives in particular to walk out of that room thinking like, okay, that was really hard, but it wasn't that bad because it can be that bad. And you need really people to be prepared for the fact that it can be awful. And so that's my motto in ransomware exercises is to make them cry. 
I think that should be one of your tags. Yeah, my tagline. Regina Phelps will make them cry. Makes them cry. That's it. So what's uh, you, like you said, you do a lot of exercises. You do a lot of ransomware exercises. Is there a theme? Like what's the biggest surprise that you see executives and organizations have when they walk through a ransomware scenario? I think for the most part, many executives believe because there's a plan, because there are processes, and there might be exercises on the technology side, they believe, first of all, that if it occurs to them, it will be a rapid recovery. And then secondarily, they believe that their backups will save them. And in both cases, they're wrong. That's not the case. I was working with an organization earlier in the year where they had full replication, which they thought was great. But the problem is when they got ransomware on all their primary servers and data since it was automatically replicated right. their backups was, were yeah. right no air gapping yeah well the other thing too is that many times people actually have these even if they've got some air gapping and they've got some protection they think many times if a perpetrator has been in your systems for months, months watching they yeah. have encrypted they have all of the encryption ready to go in all of those backups and all they have to do is just say now that happens, and then they launch the attack. So you have to be incredibly careful. And so I think that's why executives believe it won't be that bad. But if I make them cry, I've learned that all of a sudden that it changes. And then they'll say to, the, to their CISO and others, could this really happen? And of course, they're going to look at them and say, yes. I think that would be a great interview if afterwards we could interview a crying executive. <laughs> Immediately yeah. in real time. <laughs> they're, the, yes. they're the ones who walk out of the room completely pale. Right. You know, just, right. Uh, what have I just experienced? Right. And yeah. so when I talk about that, when I talk about um, ransomware, besides the crying part, I always say that it's really important that you have a uh, design process that probably is going to last at least 100 days from beginning to end, and that you have a design team that's comprised of technology professionals who figure out all of the issues. And then you have a business unit team that actually designs the injects that speak about the impact to the business. And then the second part of that that we do is that because rep and brand is the biggest concern of any executive, we always out them, not really, but we out them in the exercise. And so my, in my company, I've got an AB group that actually designs Twitter uh, posts and professionally done news broadcasts that makes it look like the local news station is coming for you, and then next it's going to be Bloomberg that's talking about you. Nice. Yeah. So that makes them really cry. Out of all the exercises that you've done, was there anything that, especially these ransomware ones, was there anything that even surprised you? I'm still so, I think the biggest thing is I'm surprised that people are so naive to think that because they have backups, they're going to be fine. And that's, really? I mean, that's really a consistent mm. theme. And I think what, I mean, I've sat through board meetings of some of my clients with presentations. And what happens is that in these big corporate boards, they will not know even what questions to ask. So they'll say to the executive, do we have a exercise? Yes, we have exercises. Do we have backups? Yes. But they never ask the next question, which is, well, could they fail? Or what would happen if they failed? And so part of it is, is that the people that are managing the executives, if you will, on the board level, don't even know those types of questions. So nobody is drilling into that. What about, I want to get your thoughts on 
one of the polarizing, most polarizing aspects of ransomware is paying ransomware. Or not. Right. And I know the FBI in the United States, their official position is never pay ransomware. But studies and anecdotally have shown that companies are paying ransomware because if there wasn't money in it, these crime rings and these threat actors wouldn't right. continue to make more right. efficient and effective ransomware. So we know it's getting paid. Uh, a lot of companies just aren't publicly stating it. And when I work with some executive teams, that seems to be one of the most contentious arguments. We'll never pay. Let's be real. They, they all pay. pay. Yeah. <laughs> My experience has been on our clients is they all pay. Yeah. Because if I suddenly take all your data offline right. or away from you, you're probably going to want it back. Right. So how do you coach companies on the front end of, you know, you can try to be strong and say you're not going to pay, but in your experience, everyone pays. Right. I think the key thing that you want to keep in mind is that if they really never want to pay ransomware, they're going to have to be incredibly confident that their backups are going to be solid and that they are really doing effective monitoring of logs for exfiltration of data. Because there's, there's the extortion, right? Yeah. They ransom you and then they extort you because of the they've exfiltrated the data. So it's all about monitoring. And there are many cases where people will actually um, not be monitoring all of those logs and all the alarms don't get caught or paid attention to. Um, and so therefore these things sometimes slip through the cracks. So yeah, I mean, I think that's the bottom line is you have to make sure you have an effective backup process. But yes, everybody does pay. How, how does paying, though, protect your brand? To go back to what you said earlier. It doesn't. Well, well, it, it does unless it becomes public. And that's one of the things that we do in our, in our exercises is that we have to make it public because I need them to squirm about the feeling of having people talk about them. And I think what happens is that most ransoms are paid, never discussed. It's not mm -hmm. disclosed. If it's not public in any way, then they kind of just wipe their brow going, wow, that was expensive, but we didn't you know, screw up our reputation and our brand. And that's why in an exercise, you have to push that to make that happen. Because I want them to be uncomfortable and see what it would be really like. And make them cry. cry. And make them cry, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my clients are probably thinking, oh God, why did we hire that woman? Oh my God. We, we all feel terrible. <laughs> and so the other presentation you did yesterday, yesterday afternoon. So were you the first speaker and the last speaker? Yeah. So they just you how's that work for me, man? Wow. Okay. And being from San Francisco too, that must have just yeah. been wonderful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you had a fun. So the session you did yesterday afternoon then was around. Yeah. So essentially, what I was is I looked at the um, kind of the impacts from the pandemic, and I was specifically asked by the conference to talk about essentially societal changes that the pandemic has, has caused and really focusing on the human aspects of that, but then also issues related to uh, the future of work. Okay. And so um, to prepare for that particular speech, I did, I read about seven books on the history of pandemics going back to 432 BC with the cholera <laughs> outbreak in Athens. And there were some incredibly, um, I don't know if it's comforting or horrifying, things I learned. But one of them is, is that what's happening societally around the world and not just in the United States, which you know, where they were, we're crazier than probably some nations like my Northern friends up here, but um, that many of these things have occurred before. Yes. And so for example, uh, the spread, uh, the lack of uh, trust of government, the lack of trust of public health measures, 
you know, the resistance of uh, distancing and, and bans on masking and issues related to vaccines go all the way back to 1770 with the uh, plagues that were occurring in Europe. Uh, things such as the, um, the uh, everybody believing that they're an expert. So this, you know, the incredible uh, belief that um, if I read it someplace, like, I don't know, Facebook. Yeah, then it's true. Then right? it's true. Yeah. And so there was a variety of societal things that are very, very consistent, including the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Even back in, you know, hundreds of years past, they didn't have Facebook or Twitter, but uh, they had other means of sharing that information. So that's, I think, is a big, that was a big aha for me anyway. And I've been doing pandemic planning for 27 years. So what are you seeing now? Now that you've been up here, you've probably heard some of the news of the things that are happening up here. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier uh, that there are <clears throat> a hospital uh, not far from where I live in uh, Kitchener or Cambridge, uh, Waterloo, one of, the, one of those cities, uh, was operating at 150% mm -hmm. because outbreaks of flu, mm -hmm. COVID, and, and RSV and kids. Mm -hmm. So what are, you, what are you seeing and what are you seeing in the future mm -hmm. right now? Yeah, so right now it's going to be a tough winter. I'll just tell you that straight away. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to be a really tough winter. And we were very prescient in our talk last month. We talked a lot about RSV and influenza. In the States, the same thing is occurring. Hospitals are really overwhelmed with children, really ill. Some large hospitals, large children hospitals are already building tent hospitals in the parking lot because they have overran their bed capacity. So it's going to be a very tough winter. As far as RSV and influenza, same thing. Influenza, if you look at the uh, CDC map in the United States for flu weekly, if you don't know that site, you should go to it. Uh, it's already where 50% of the country is already in severe flu. So then you put COVID on top of that. And we have a whole cascade of new variants, as you well know, from BA5, which is the original Omicron. And there's one now that's actually blazing through Canada and the United States, which is BQ.1.1. How do you like that for that? I've never been able to keep all those. I know. It's, I, I can only remember so many of them at one time. But anyway, yeah, it's going to be a very tough winter. Now, as whether that it results in a lot of deaths, uh, or hospitalizations on the COVID side is yet to be seen. However, the good news is, is that the Pfizer and Moderna bivalent vaccines are effective against the BQ.1.1.1. <laughs> so that, if you haven't gotten a bivalent vaccine, you might want to. Well, I've, I've got four. I've got uh, all the ones I'm eligible. Do you have the bivalent? Do you have the bivalent stuff here in Canada? I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I can't say that with 100% assurance. I know I had the latest, best that I could get because that's exactly what my pharmacist, right, who was doing it, told me. Said this is the latest and greatest that you can get. So, so if that's it, then yes, I have it. When did you get it? Uh, would be two months ago. Uh, might not be. <laughs> Might not be. Well, if the fifth one comes say, up, I'll be getting it. I think my last booster was in August, so you and I might be out of date now. Yeah, you actually should so, be looking at the bivalent. Okay. I, I would get recommend my that. Shot. Good, I good, good. Sure I, got that. I, got I counsel him all time. the time. Good. <laughs> so, what other things are you seeing? Could it be um, your lessons learned? What other things maybe that we've learned, but we're not doing anything about? 
Oh, well, that's a long, that could be a long story. But I think the, the, the issues are related to, um, I think that we should be thinking about professionally are issues related to the impact of the workforce, just looking at the illness for a moment and looking at long COVID. Uh, long COVID is a significant health issue across the world. In the United States, we just had a staffing shortage in a variety of professions over the last two years. Um, about a half a million people in the U.S. are off work today because of long COVID. That is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And yeah. so um, I think when you think about our continuity plans, I mean, the idea that you actually, I mean, what if some of the most critical people in your company all of a sudden fall ill to something like long COVID and they can't work? And so I always ask my clients, you know, if you have anybody in your business, like in technology or other key departments that you feel like you have to bubble wrap every night before you send them home, uh, you might want to look at those kinds of roles and then really look at your SOPs and look at your continuity plans to ensure that you actually have adequate coverage. Because don't assume that those people are going to be able to. Is that where things like succession planning and cross training and all job of that. shadowing and all those kinds of All of, of those things. And, and that's uh, currently a big part of, of course, what we do for a living, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also another value that you can provide because we've talked a lot about value. value I'm not an, yeah, that's right. I'm not an ROI person. I'm a VOI person. And uh, I think that's one of the key things to look at. So I think that's an important piece. So you speak and travel at a lot of conferences, obviously. And there was a two-year period where none of us, there were no conferences. So what's it like, we've been asking everyone, what's it been like for you this year, getting back into the swing of in-person conferences and traveling to different conferences? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. So normally prior to the pandemic, I would fly about 200,000 miles a year and probably go to four continents out of uh, five that we work in. And um, I have to say, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I actually had to say that it's been really nice <laughs> that goes against everything you've told me over the last two and a half years. <laughs> Not to travel so much. Um, so what I've appreciated, I think it's been fun to be in conferences. It's fun to see people. Uh, and I've, I've enjoyed that. But what I've also enjoyed, which is really odd, I'm, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, is that after doing so many exercises in my life, I was one of those believers that you had to be in the room to actually make it happen. But I have changed my attitude about that completely and really for several reasons is that you can we've actually perfected the virtual exercise i've done over 200 of those since the pandemic began in march of 2020 and they they can be much better i think than actually a regular exercise in the room and part of that is if you think about how people are going to run events they're going to run them a lot in the virtual space and maybe it'll be hybrid but there'll be a lot of people virtually and so I, what I think that's been for me has been really great is to see this opportunity that, that people could be much more effective in that space, which we wouldn't have done if there hadn't been right. a pandemic. So for those of our colleagues who now run virtual exercises without giving away everything you do, of course, are there like one or two things you can share with our audience yeah, that they sure. should be doing to do more effective yes. uh, virtual exercises? Outside of making people cry. Outside of <laughs> 
well, one hire Regina, two she'll make your management cry. But then, yeah, but then beyond, besides that, are there two other things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could share. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's several things I could share. So I think the, what I would say is that when you're looking at a virtual exercise, it's it's very structured. It's way more structured than an in-person experience. Okay. You know, an in, in-person experience, you know, you might have a, a schedule that you're going to keep to, but if it's five minutes here or five minutes there, it's because you're all in the room. It doesn't matter, right? But when you're actually doing it virtually, we first of all build a very what we call detailed AV agenda, which basically has every little step along the way, who's showing video, who's showing slides, how it works, what the breakout rooms are, what the timestamps are. And we usually have that very scripted. So that's the first thing is you need to nail it and you need to stay to it. Secondly, I think the other thing is really important that's tied to that is we always make sure that we have a AV producer or a okay. Zoom producer. So um, you as the, as the facilitator of an exercise should not be at all um, worried about, gosh, you know, what happened? Somebody came to the main room. You know what? No, that's not your job. Your job is to make sure that you have a very skilled person who knows all the insides and outs of Teams or Zoom or whatever you're using. And that they basically are monitoring where people are going. They're dropping in messages for us on the broadcast function. And they're taking care of all of that. So Some those good are advice we could have used yesterday. We, we, we could have used that. Where were you yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I can't wait to hear about yesterday. <laughs> it was an experience. Oh, yeah. This yeah. started it. This started it. Yeah. Yeah. So those are, to me, those are the two most critical things. And then the other thing I say is a third thing that I, I think it's really important is that you want to make sure that when you are actually doing a virtual exercise, that a few days before the event, you send out to all the participants or your, my client sends out uh, like a one page document about how the game is going to be played so that people understand we're going to be in a main room. We're going to go to a breakout room. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And so they can actually kind of get their head in the game before they show up. You must have also in all of those breakout rooms, you must have observers, you must have scribes. There has to be a designated leader, all of that stuff, you know, just to make sure that it's tight. And then what I do is I wander around the whole time. So once we go to breakout rooms, you're gonna see me bouncing in and out of every room. Nice. I, I just thought of something because um, a couple of weeks ago, there was an exercise held with uh, a cyber exercise mm. held with the executive of the company I'm working with. And they were asked questions about the cyber event. <clears throat> there were no crisis management people, business continuity people, nobody else there, just the executive. Mm -hmm. Then there was a second exercise and it was all the business continuity crisis management people, yep. no executives. They did the wrong suggest, order. How do you suggest bringing those together? Yep. Because okay. they were both dealing with different assumptions, <clears throat> right. throwing, you know, right. oh, that goes here, that goes here. And so, the two just were going in different directions. Yeah, it's, that was a bad design. Yeah, <clears throat> so they cried for the wrong reason. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so. so the design would be is this. If we were doing that, we would always, first of all, I would, I, I, I would want to know what the previous history of the, uh, their exercise experience was, you know, and, and how trained are the executives? Do the executives really understand and know their role, et cetera? And the same thing for the tactical team below them. Then what I would very likely do is if I was going to have them as separate events, the first exercise would be for the tactical team below them because all the issues that they're going to develop and, and essentially cascade up are going to happen in that exercise. Then you can take those and then actually deliver them to the executive team. 
if you're going to do them on the same day, which we do a lot of, then what I do is I actually then will plot out, let's say it's a four hour block of time. Um, there'll be about two and a half hours of play time in there, maybe close to three. Then essentially what I would do is in the first part of that exercise, we would have them run for like probably an hour. And then there'd be like about a 10 minute section or a 15 minute section where you would give a briefing to the executives in real time. Mm -hmm. And then they disconnect and then you continue the exercise. And then there's another executive briefing at that end. So the advantage about that is that then the real executives are talking to the real players, right? Yeah. Interesting. And when I do that then, uh, but I will say that I never do that unless I know that my tactical team below the executives is comfortable in their role. Like kind of, I, I don't want them to look bad. Right. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that they are, are in, in the position where when they do the briefing, they're going to be grounded. Uh, that doesn't mean they know all the answers, but they're going to be grounded. They're not so, the ones you want to make cry. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. I want never, to, never make the client cry. Right. Right. So there's a progressive thing. I mean, if you actually are developing a crisis management process, if you have that kind of progressive set of exercises, ultimately, in our clients that we've worked for for years, whenever we do an exercise, there's always executive briefings. And it's the real executives. And they, the executives, for me, get a little document in advance that says kind of what the what the issue is because they would know of course before the first briefing that something was up so i don't want them to be flat-footed and then we essentially they do those briefings and it's really good training for the executives and it's really good training for the tactical team below them Mm -hmm. nice yeah uh we're almost at time so can i close with a regina phelps's famous story oh no would you like to hear (laughs) regina's famous story what's the famous story no i've never shared it before i'm going to share it right now (laughs) oh oh, okay do i this is actually is this where i do this this is this is is not a bit uh pre-covid you know years and years ago back in the calm days i was speaking at a small risk event in new zealand and obviously it's very obvious i'm an american i look like an american i talk like an american there's no secret and so somebody asked me, they're like, oh, do you know Regina Phelps? And I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I know. Like, we don't, we don't hang out and drink together, but she's, I know her. And they're like, you know Regina? And this person was smitten. And I couldn't help but think, I'm on the other side of the world and your fan base. So you have a global audience. I've never shared that story. True story. I'm blushing. You have a huge fan base in uh, mm-hmm. New Zealand. They love you there. So apparently you don't make them cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we were going to ask you one thing. Yeah. Because you were making faces of us at us off camera. Off camera. Will you make funny faces on camera? There we go. All right. <laughs> you did it. Yeah. See? <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen. But it did. I didn't think so either. Yeah, see, once you start that, you got to go with it, man. Exactly. <laughs> So, Regina, for those of us not in New Zealand who want to know, where, what's the best way to contact you or to find find you online out in the Out in the, the Ethernet? Yeah. So you can either go to LinkedIn and search my name, or you can just type in a Google search, Regina Phelps, and you're going to find me on the first 20 pages. Okay, first 20 yep. pages, <laughs> easy enough. And and uh, I actually even have a, for, for the unexpected, Regina has her own and so does James, actually. Their See, own. Uh, we have a sub channel underneath. Sub channel underneath. Yeah. We're we're just all okay. James well, then just follow this guy and you're going to find me, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Regina, thank you so much for joining us. As always. It's so good to, to <laughs> see you in person. Yeah, ditto. And, uh, after years now of chatting online. Ditto. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thank you for being Thanks, here. Thanks, James. Thanks, Regina.